You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 308, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 13, 2017. Today's guests include Elizabeth McClellan, the founder and president of Partners for World Health, and Robert Atkinson, author of The Story of Our Time, From Duality to Interconnectedness to Oneness. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Elizabeth McClellan, who is the founder and president of Partners for World Health and who has spent her career working in nursing and healthcare administration. Thanks so much for coming in. It's great to be here. Partners for World Health. You've been doing a lot of work over the last 10 years. Talk to me about your organization and what you're doing. So Partners for World Health is an organization that I started in 2007 and collecting Uh, discarded medical supplies from hospitals here in the Portland area and in about a year and a half I had about 11,000 pounds of discarded medical supplies located in my house before I moved it to a to its first warehouse so our mission is to collect the discarded medical supplies and reprocess them repackage them and then ship them to various hospitals and clinics in Africa the Middle East and Southeast Asia in addition we also run medical missions in Bangladesh, uh, Uganda, Senegal, Cameroon, and Turkey to take care of the Syrian refugees. You've been in this, working in this area, in the Portland area, for quite some time. How did you get involved with World Health? Why did this uh, show up on your radar screen? Well, I spent uh, many years living in the Middle East, working in Saudi Arabia for the Arab American Oil Company. Uh, in the nur- in nursing administration there, and I had the opportunity to travel all over northern Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, and visited hospitals and met various people in the healthcare industry, only to realize that they didn't have any medical supplies or not enough medical supplies. So I decided, when I came home, that I was going to begin that effort at carrying them and uh, acquiring them and then packing them up in my suitcases and traveling two or three times a year to different places in the world to deliver these supplies. And one thing led to another and when I was working in nursing administration at Maine Medical Center I decided to start uh, collecting them and just put a few bins out at various units and one thing's led to another so that now we have four warehouses here in the state of Maine and one coming on board in Burlington, Vermont for University of Vermont Medical Center. So it's really grown. You also spend a lot of time um, working with nursing students and students in the allied health professions. It's, so it's not just bringing the supplies over, you're actually bringing people over with you. Well, in our medical mission program, we bring doctors, nurses, nursing students, medical students, and other healthcare professionals to provide either surgery or primary health care or community-wide education. But predominantly, our workforce at Partners for World Health is a volunteer effort. 
I'm a volunteer. I'm not paid for anything. We have a, a bookkeeper for 15 hours a week. That's the only, currently, the only paid employee. And we're hoping to hire in the next couple of months a program director for our distribution center, which is where most of the small things come in, like bandages and dressings and catheters and needles and syringes, and also hire a volunteer coordinator so that we can expand our workforce. We could use 25 volunteers a day, five days a week, in order to process all the medical supplies that are coming in from all over the state of Maine, from New Hampshire, Vermont, and five hospitals in Boston. These medical supplies, um, even though they're technically used, they're not really used. There's a lot of waste that actually takes place within the medical system. Right, but these are some medical supplies like our other warehouse here in Portland. We have two locations, one on Kanker Road, which is our shipping center, and that's the place where all of the beds, the wheelchairs, the walkers, the crutches, all of the biomedical equipment are stored. For example, EKG machines, defibrillators, anesthesia machines, incubators may have been used, but they have an extended life and we have them checked by our medical volunteer biomedical people to make sure that they're in good working order before we ship them. Other medical supplies can come in that have never even been used that might still be in the original package like dressing supplies and and uh, Foley catheter supplies and many other items that are in the package. Some items are coming in like as adult diapers that might have been opened but only one or two were used and then the rest are still in the package. So it, we go through, we have to go through everything to reprocess it and repackage it to make it acceptable for shipping. Are there different regulations that you have to deal with depending upon the countries that you're sending things to? Oh yes, there are many, many regulations depending upon the country. For example, in Uganda, to ship a medical container 40, 40 feet long that would hold about 12,000 pounds of medical supplies involves a pre-inspection here in the United States. In addition, you have to change all the electrical cords, put an adapter on them, and provide a mini transformer for every electrical piece of equipment. We ship a container load of 12,000 to 15,000 pounds once a month out of Portland, out of our shipping center, and the next one leaves tomorrow on the 21st of June to head for Syria. Now, Syria doesn't really require a lot, doesn't require a pre-inspection, also doesn't require that transformers be sent, but a variety of different regulations are uh, implemented in different countries, all depending on um, what their rules and regulations are. But predominantly, most of them require that you do not send expired items, so we have to check all of the um, items that come in. For example, a 4x4 gauze could have an expiration date on it of August 2016. And that means in our reality in the United States in our healthcare system that it's expired and we cannot use it. But what we do is take it out of the package and then repackage it in, in a Ziploc bag and send it as non-sterile gauze. So we always try to find another alternative way of repackaging it and sending it so that it doesn't end up in the dump. So if you were to come and visit our distribution center, which is at 40 Walsh Drive, you would see huge space of 15,000 square feet of boxes and, and bags of medical supplies that have been discarded from nursing homes, hospitals, private individuals, and all of that needs to be reprocessed. What is it about your background in um, nursing administration that made you so interested in this, the logistics of this process? 
Well, there are many logistics in this process, and it's not anything that I learned while I was in nursing school or graduate school, absolutely nothing. So it's really been learning by the seat of your pants and trying to figure it out, which is something that we do learn in nursing school, which are three very valuable words, figure it out. And we've managed to do that, and I've managed to do that over the the past several years. But my big interest, especially when I lived in the Middle East and did all this traveling, was to try to figure out how you can make a difference in other people's lives. And this is one way to do it and also save our environment at the same time because all of the items that are located in our warehouses are basically considered trash and they would have all hit the landfill. So we can have a major impact on improving our environment and doing, and then doing the right thing, which is to provide services and something that will help to make a difference in people's lives, especially those people that are less fortunate than we are. You've received multiple awards from um, organizations in the community, including the Hanley Center Leadership and Humanitarian Relief Award in 2010, the Red Cross Real Hero Award in 2011, the Outstanding Nonprofit Award in 2012, the Northeastern University Social Impact Award in 2014, and the Patriots Myrocraft Community Service Award more recently. This is, there are a lot of people who are paying attention to the work that you're doing. Has it enabled you to um, expand to the extent that you would like to? Well, those awards, first of all, that I may have received are really not, really they're not for me. They're really for all of the volunteers that have spent thousands of hours making this whole organization, Partners for World Health, succeed. I could never have done this without all of them. And last year alone, we had over 25,000 volunteer hours uh, that people donated that were documented, let alone all the thousands of hours of donation that people made that were never documented. So those awards were absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much to all of those great organizations that um, talked about our accolades and and, uh, supported us. But really, we need to remember that the success of this organization is because of all the volunteers from young to old that have dedicated many hours. Uh, in reality, these awards have brought a lot of attention to us, a lot of attention to Partners for World Health, and they've helped, have helped to increase our uh, volunteers, the number of volunteers, and people sign up on the website with a volunteer application and then they come in for an orientation and they're absolutely totally surprised about the volume of medical supplies and all of the different things that we can do. And many times these awards have brought attention to other major donors that have helped to support us from a financial perspective. And that's our biggest challenge is as it is for many nonprofits to find enough money, to raise enough money at an annual appeal, to find grants that would uh, offer support for transportation of these containers, and also to find um, individuals that might wanna, want to make a major contribution that could help. And a major contribution would be a big, big deal to Partners for World Health because it would allow us to hire a few more people. We need um, five to six full-time employees in order to make this hum, and we're not there yet. And partly it's because of um, the need for financial contributions. And if someone wanted to make an, another huge donation, we would be able to send two containers a month, to, especially to countries that are not able to raise the funds to pay for the processing and shipping fees. For example, Malawi, 
which is one of the poorest countries in Africa and the poor, one of the poorest countries in, in our world, is in dire need of simple, basic medical supplies. And we have everything that they could need. However, they have no source of funding. So if, if someone could come to the foreplate and help to provide a donation for transportation and processing fees, that would be a big help. Well, from your lips to, if, if people believe in a God, God's ears, how's that sound? We'll see if uh, people who are great. listening, yes, <laughs> we'll see if people who are listening um, can, can come forward and make this possible for you. Um, where did you grow up, Elizabeth? I was born in Maine and grew up in Camden. Um, yeah, with a, with a great family, two brothers and two sisters, and a father who was a, a physician, anesthesiologist up there at Penn Bay Medical Center and a mom who was a nurse. So you have this uh, medical background almost in your, in your DNA, I guess. What types of things did you learn from your parents when you were growing up about the need to care for other people? Well, the need to make a, a difference in other people's life and to help those less fortunate was instilled in us a long time ago. I can remember going to um, at Christmas time, wrapping up Christmas presents, and then with my mother and dropping them off at various houses in the Camden Rockport area, especially for those individuals who were far less fortunate than we were. And also, there was something my father always said at nighttime at the end of Grace, which was, "Keep us ever mindful of the needs and wants of others," and that has stuck with me my whole life. Why did you decide to become a nurse? Oh, well, that's because my mother wanted me to be a nurse. <laughs> I graduated from college in Washington, D.C., and moved to Boston and was working in a retail store in the Boston area, and my mother didn't like that idea of her daughter selling jewelry for the rest of her life, so she managed to pull a few strings, and I, I entered Mass General Hospital School of Nursing uh, that fall and finished a couple of years later. So I am a nurse because of my mother. And actually, it was a very good decision on her part um, because it's offered me incredible opportunities, first of all, to make a difference in people's lives here in the United States, but also to learn about the world and different cultures and to make a difference in so many other people's lives. I mean, nursing is a profession that take, can take you anywhere, whether it's here in, the, in this country or anywhere in the world. So I really would advocate and and talk to anybody about how great it would be t for them to become a registered nurse. What are some of your favorite uh, memories involving partners in World Health, and specifically the people that you've met? Well, a really recent memory was on our uh, medical mission to Bangladesh. We do a surgical and primary health care medical mission each year in March and we've been going there for the past seven years and we in one of our primary care settings which is in the Tangai brothel in Bangladesh about two hours outside of uh, Dhaka the capital where 950 sex workers live with their children these are women and children that have been trafficked in or women that have been born in the brothel that have stayed in the brothel as sex workers and end up raising their children there but we arrived this year, this was our fourth primary care mission in the brothel, and we were welcomed by 150 of the sex workers who were cheering and singing when we came through the doors to uh, into this brothel area. And it was really quite emotional to 
see all of them there because we are their only source of health care. They can go to the hospital during the year, however, they're ostracized so many times. So for when we show up, it's just a welcome, a big, huge welcome by all of them for us, and it really meant a lot for us to be there. It meant a lot that they so much appreciated us coming. And there have been other instances where we have uh, definitely made a difference in people's lives only because we just happened to go. And one of those was in uh, instances was in Senegal last year when we were in a primary care clinic that we were running outside of Dakar about three hours in the desert uh, inland in the, in the country in remote areas where we provide primary health care services and this particular clinic was the first one in this site was the first one we have ever done and a five-year-old little deaf girl came into the clinic she has never had a hearing t- had never had a hearing test so there was no way that we would know whether or not she had the ability to um, to hear and she there was no way that she was ever going to go to school unless we could figure out how to have a hearing test and and um, put her in in a deaf school located in the capital in Senegal and so this year we're now in the process we raised a little bit of money and found some people over in Senegal that can help support this young girl and they're taking her to have her hearing test next month which is pretty exciting because if she can hear or has some way of hearing then we can help her with the hearing aids and then she'll be able to go to the deaf school otherwise she would have spent the rest of her life living in this little thatched hut in a rural village never having the opportunity to learn anything or communicate with anyone. So that's pretty exciting to be able to make a difference in somebody's life just because we showed up. It was just by chance that we ran into her that day. And there are lots of stories like that, lots of stories. And the medical supplies make a big difference too because if you think about what doctors and nurses have to do and how they perform their jobs, you need sutures, you need scissors, you need cast material, you need dressings, you need bandages in order to put people back together again. If you don't have your supplies, then doctors and nurses aren't able to do their job. So collecting all of these medical supplies that are going to be discarded that's fine. We'll be happy to try to figure out how to give them another use, especially those for those people, and there are so many of them in our world that are less fortunate. We also do a lot with local, a big local give-back program, and we provide personal care items. We provide uh, diapers and briefs uh, to the food pantries, to uh, homeless shelters here in the Portland area, Augusta and Bangor. Uh, we have one of my retired nurse colleagues is very much into our local give back program and has contacted a variety of different agencies and pantries, etc., that have come down to pick up truckloads of items that we're willing to give them for free so that they can take them out and uh, donate them or give them back to people in the community. In addition, this nurse uh, by the name of Marie Keller has been known to stop on the side of the road. Uh, with cans of Ensure and uh, protein drinks and give them to the people that are standing there um, asking for money instead of giving them a dollar, giving them cans of nutritious drinks for them to drink, which I think is just terrific. And I need a photograph of that happening in our in Portland, Maine, of her handing out these cans of Ensure out of her car window to all the homeless people. <laughs> 
How do you find the people that need you? How do you find the people that are um, looking for supplies um, in Bangladesh, say, or primary care, or even the people that need um, the help that you offer here in Maine through your Give Back program? The first people that I contacted initially to uh, see if they're of their interest in uh, receiving medical supplies were people and organizations that I met when I was living in the Middle East and traveling. Those are the first people. And now what happens is that individuals and organizations find out about us through the website, really predominantly through the internet and the website when they type in looking for medical supplies and Partners for World Health might pop up in there in the search engine. Um, and then other individuals like refugees and other people that have immigrated from different parts of the world to the United States and who live here in Maine or, have, or in Massachusetts have t want to do good for their own country and so they've contacted us and have asked that we uh, provide a container of medical supplies to them. For example, a church group in Massachusetts supports a physician uh, Dr. Zewe, who lives in Morovia in Liberia, who visited here several months ago. And so they're helping to raise the funds for the shipping and processing fees for a full container for her 25-bed facility, which is the only one of the only hospitals that remained open during their Ebola crisis. So this woman is really, this physician in Liberia is very dedicated to helping uh, the people in her country, especially the poor people, to provide services. So it's those kind of individuals that find us and contact us. Uh, sometimes it's me doing a little investigating on the internet or hearing about other organizations like orphanages, because once somebody started an orphanage, then kids get sick. And so eventually there's a clinic that will pop up very near to an orphanage. And, uh, and then that clinic will need, or that small hospital will need beds and other different types of medical supplies to take care of these children. So we, we have a lot of requests coming in. In fact, we could fill, right now we could ship 20, 44 containers right now if we had the funding to ship them. And we have 20 places where we could, where we could send them to. I mean, I could rattle off a list of people and organizations that uh, need these items. What about the people that are needing primary care, for example? How do you find out about them? Primary care in Africa? Or primary care services in general. Overseas? Yes. Well, in our for our medical mission program, we find out part of what we do with the container program is that if you're interested in a container then and we ship a container we usually try to follow up with a medical mission following the shipping of the container not when the container arrives but at some point in the following year we'll try to work in a a medical mission like we want to be able to go to Liberia and help this woman out and what the services that we would provide because it's a small place we probably wouldn't do surgery but we would do primary health care and so we would work with those partners that we would identify and they would and tell them that we're bringing nurse practitioners or primary care docs other uh, nursing professionals to run a primary care clinic and then they would put the word out and find and find the patients and when people know that you're coming there'll be 400 people lined up on the first day because people will put the word out. For example, we implemented a project this year in Senegal when we were there in May 
called Project 10,000, and the goal is to interview 10,000 pregnant women in different countries in Africa and provide education and training to the women on the complications of pregnancy because none of them are uh, given any prenatal care, so they don't understand what could possibly happen to them when these complications occur, so they wait until it's too late, which would result in their death or the death of their child. And after they've finished with the education, we give them their own birthing kit full of items that they would ordinarily have to purchase before they go into labor to take to the midwife. But we've saved all those items from the dump here and we package them all up and we actually give them everything that they need to do a normal, uh, to have a normal delivery. And we interviewed 350 uh, pregnant women in Senegal, and we've partnered with three nurse midwives from three different facilities who will follow up in four to seven months with all of these pregnant women to determine the outcome and to see if they did develop complications, and if they did, did they go immediately to the hospital? This will help to kind of look at the maternal mortality rate and the infant mortality rate in different places in Africa. We're heading back to Uganda on a medical mission in August, August 25th. We have 13 people going with us and we're taking uh, nursing students from Kaplan University and five other RNs along with a couple of non-medical people. And we could take a few more nurses if anyone's interested in participating. And during that medical mission, we will work at two hospitals providing primary health care, uh, doing nursing, education for nurses and nursing students uh, in NICU on how to take care of the critically ill baby, as well as interview 500 pregnant women for Project 10,000. And this is something that the students have been involved with from the beginning, making the supplies, writing the PowerPoints on what are the complications of pregnancy, and they will be the ones also with uh, nursing supervision uh, providing the education to these pregnant women. So it's a real total give back from start to finish. It's pretty exciting. So stay tuned. We still have an, um, 9,000 more people to go. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you will be able to reach your goal because I'm impressed with all the work that you've been able to put into this and the goals that you've already met in the, over the last 10 years. Right. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Elizabeth McClellan, who is the founder and president of Partners for World Health and who has spent her career working in nursing and healthcare administration. Thank you so much for all the work you do and for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street, Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live are available now. Maine Live is a day of inspiring talks and stories of grit by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers that will inspire conversation and connection. This fifth Maine Live is on Thursday, September 21st at USM's Hannaford Hall. Go to mainelivesepember2017.splashthat.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. My next guest is Dr. Robert Atkinson, who is an internationally recognized expert on life story interviewing, personal myth-making, and soul-making. He is the author of nine books, including The Story of Our Time, From Duality to Interconnectedness to Oneness. Dr. Atkinson previously taught at the University of Southern Maine. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 
So this is a really interesting um, time that we're in now, this, this time of kind of upheaval within our governmental systems. And there's a lot of shifting and changing that's probably been going on, I want to say, at least the last maybe 20 years or so. But you may extend it out further into your lifetime. Why did you think it was time to talk about oneness? Hmm. Well, it's been a piece of our evolutionary process that's been moving toward that for, for I would say, you know, at least a century, maybe a century and a half or three quarters. So it, it all depends on, how, on the perspective we take on, on it. And the book takes a big picture perspective of the whole process that we're in the midst of right now. And so we, I, I step back and look from a distance, pretty much. <clears throat> and th there were signs of, and, and a real um, <clears throat> need for bringing into our conscious awareness the need to shift our focus from actually it's been a long very, uh, totally really long process of evolution going back and, and one of the ways I like to look at the whole process is in terms of spiritual epics and those are defined by each individual uh, prophet who has been the founder of a major world religion so we go back way back in time to to uh, four or five thousand years ago with um, the time of, of um, Abraham and then Krishna and then Moses and then Zoroaster and then Buddha and Christ and Muhammad and then in the middle of the 18th century was Baha'u'llah who was the founder of the Baha'i Faith and each of those represented a leap of consciousness and so we started out way back with a with a focus on and, and a need to create oneness in the family and then that expanded to need to create unity oneness harmony in the tribe and and w went on to larger and larger contexts <clears throat> city city state nation and today the need is to uh, turn our focus to to humanity as a whole, the world as a whole, because we are becoming a global community. And so that's been a long process in the works. And even though the um, the teachings of Baha'u'llah came into existence in the mid to late 1800s, it's taken the world about that much time till till say the 1960s or whenever you want to start thinking of the real the real shift uh, to to occur and one of the and part of the uh, way that that shift has been made I think is through the advancement of technology as well so one of one of the key events of my early adult life was the uh, was the moonwalk in 1969 where um, you know the, the not only the, the country but the world was kind of fixed on the TV screens and the, um, it was it was not only a matter of uh, one small step for man one leap for humanity but it was the photographs that were sent back from the moon of earth 
where we could see for the first time, literally, um, that the Earth is one planet with no boundaries. And then from that point on, a number of other things kept happening uh, to confirm that for us, that, that, rea that new reality for us. And um, <clears throat> that also happened to be the time in my own life when I was um, in the midst of a series of, of adventures that um, became my um, spiritual adventure, my, my quest. And so, right, and then that same summer, 1969, was also when I was in the right place at the right time to um, attend Woodstock Festival, and that was um, one of those ex one of those rare experiences where everybody really did feel like it was uh, you know, humanity coming together in harmony. And then a few months later, um, <clears throat> that winter, I met um, Joseph Campbell who actually became a mentor for me in, uh, 19, uh, in 1970s was when I met him. And there's one piece from the book here that I would uh, just read because it's a, it's a quote from his book that um, he, um, un I met him after one of his talks in 1970 and he kind of, took me under his wing and uh, on one of my visits to his home in Greenwich Village he gave me a copy of his um, uh, signed copy of his uh, The Mass of God Creative Mythology which was the final volume in a series that he had written and and in the in the uh, preface to that to the last volume of that series he wrote that the series confirmed for him quote a thought I have long and faithfully entertained of the unity of the human race, not only in its biology, but also in its spiritual history, which has everywhere unfolded in the manner of a single symphony with its themes irresistibly advancing to some kind of mighty climax. So there was another um, expression of that, of um, one planet, uh, one people, basically concept and my own so my own quest and, and uh, study of the world's religions continued from that point on and uh, just became clear as I went went along and that particular um, quote from him became kind of the uh, center of my emerging worldview uh, so it, so it has been a long process and uh, as we and now and you know 50 some years later from the moonwalk we're seeing that um, it's turning out to be that the 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 evolutionary process toward oneness is turning out to be a much more difficult struggle than we might want it to be. But that's also part of the process. Um, I have a chapter in the book on um, on uh, opposition as the catalyst for transformation. So, so what we are seeing today is also part of the process of um, kind of needing, for whatever reason, needing to go basically deeper into our collective shadow to emerge from that, to then get even closer to our sense of oneness. Give me some examples of what you are describing as our collective shadow. 
Well, um, <laughs> that could be kind of a loaded question, but <clears throat> um, th there's a, a section of that chapter um, that I where I talk about the dark night of the collective soul, and that's kind of what I was re referring to. And of course, the dark night is a is a key part of the uh, of the mystic journey on the individual level as well as a key part of the, 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 the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell's work. And, and each, each um, individual journey <coughs> has that part where we um, face our own difficulties and, and have to um, learn somehow how to overcome the greatest difficulties that we have in our lives in order to um, let go of those uh, parts of ourselves that may be holding us back from the uh, uh, essence of who we are as a soul um, on a journey from God and returning to the Creator. Uh, but we also carry those Aspects, those elements, the, the the what are what Jung referred to as the shadow side, <clears throat> we all carry those within us, too, and sometimes they emerge to the surface, and so we're seeing that more now with the uh, with the uh, greater distinction between um, oneness and duality emerging it's it's head in so many ways I mean we can we can uh, probably the easiest example to use right now is in the in the political realm uh, with all the uh, debates and beyond that are happening about um, <clears throat> what our what our uh, values are or should be or that kind of thing and, and so it's a matter of um, opposites coming out becoming evident, apparent, and that creates a real struggle between the opposites. <clears throat> and it's, it's a process of that struggle playing out and eventually um, the, um, this, there's a number of ways of putting it, but eventually what happens is <clears throat> the, um, the light overcomes the shadow and <clears throat> through that struggle uh, the process of of um, getting gaining a better understanding of what those two forces are really about happens and and we um, uh, the, the force of light eventually wins out and, and we move and the progress moves onward um, towards towards that um, towards that unity and oneness so I mean that I didn't really give you a specific example but there are many in and from our recent p political realm <laughs> you know that have that have brought out that shadow and and the, and the interesting thing is the <clears throat> The more that shadow side comes out, the greater the other side becomes as well. And 
and so it's always a matter of um, one kind of fueling the other um, and making both even more apparent in terms of how they how they uh, juxtapose to each other one interesting uh, moment recently was um, one day we had the inauguration of the new president the next day we had the women's march and <clears throat> so if some might say the inauguration itself and all it represented uh, <clears throat> was about our collective shadow side then the next day the women's march worldwide globally totally not totally but mostly spontaneous seven uh, people on seven continents in harmony <clears throat> uh, asserting really um, the oneness of humanity by bringing in to that one march all of the human rights issues of the last 50 years or more. Some would say that one of the reasons we have had this issue with duality is that maybe the people on either side aren't really listening to one another. So no matter what one's political bent is, if, if people are surprised that a certain president was elected, then maybe they weren't paying attention to what was actually going on in the other half of the population. I mean, we saw this within our own state. Yeah, paying attention is a really important part of the whole thing. First of all, our collective conscious evolution is not a straight line from one point to the other. It is more like a um, process with, from one point to another with that incorporates uh, cycles w within it. So when we when we um, lose track of what's going on or, or don't pay attention to what is going on, <clears throat> that allows kind of an opening for the uh, for the shadow side to pop up maybe a little easier than it might have if and so it's it's really like that whole process is kind of like our own individual spiritual practice and if we <clears throat> whatever we have as a as a spiritual practice whether it's meditation or yoga or whatever it is if we don't keep that up on a regular basis other things happen take take over and so it's the same kind of process on a collective level and, and moving toward our, our collective goal. I mean, the other, this is all kind of in the context of uh, all of the world's sacred traditions having in common not only uh, things like the Golden Rule and various versions of the Ten Commandments with each, um, in each the spiritual epic, but also having in common uh, the, the the need for some kind of, of regular practice to keep us on the path. And without that, we open ourselves up to other kinds of troubles. When you were a professor at the University of Southern Maine, what was your focus? My field? Yes. It was, um, my main field was cross-cultural human development. 
And I came to that from a number of other approaches. Um, I majored in philosophy in college, then I got a master's degree. My first master's degree was in American folk culture, <clears throat> and then I got a second master's in counseling, and then my doctoral work was in cross-cultural human development. So I kind of merged all of those interests into <clears throat> a way of um, approaching and understanding human development from a cross-cultural and spiritual perspective. And integrated all of those into my courses, which were, uh, I, I taught in the uh, counselor education program at USM. And <clears throat> so I, I think um, the graduate students that I had over the 27 years, um, I, I think they, because they were <clears throat> coming from their own personal experiences <clears throat> that brought them to counseling, I think they appreciated that, that broader cross-cultural spiritual approach to human development. I'm going to read a paragraph from your book that, that speaks to me um, because it, it speaks about the way that we develop as, as humans, as individuals. Um, usually a gradual process, most children start out with limited access to reality. As our sensing, feeling, and mental capacities develop and mature, we grasp greater levels of complexity, think symbolically, understand other points of view, apply logic, weigh dichotomies, make difficult decisions, think abstractly and hypothetically, and eventually become theoretical about life and our experience of it. As our thinking matures, our consciousness expands and we see what was once hidden. If we are, all of us, arguably, on individual continua, we're all evolving at different paces. We're, we're never going to all be in the same place at the same time. We may not be children anymore, but even as adults, I think that we evolve. How do we move towards oneness with that? It's a long process. <clears throat> and um, you're exactly right that not everyone is going to get to that goal or point at the same time. And so we notice clearly how there are, um, have been throughout history, pockets of resistance or, or not moving along at the same pace as other parts of the pop, uh, population. <clears throat> so that is part of the process because it's a, it's a relative process, it's a progressive process, that, and, and not, ev not everyone is at the same place at the same time, as, as you said. Um, how we will all get to that place of living with a consciousness of oneness at some point is that... Um, it is a very gradual process. It's a it's one of those um, processes or movements that is definitely not short term, um, and uh, but it is a process that gains a little traction by little steps at a time, and it's kind of I think it's kind of like. Um, uh, 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 the same kind of process in any other kind of setting. <clears throat> the more individuals who make progress, the more they, they create 
a um, uh, greater force beyond the resistance level and <clears throat> the more they get the collective closer to what some think of as a tipping point at which point once that's reached then many more will come to that point more quickly so um, and the tipping point in terms of our collective evolution towards that is not that great. I mean, it's not 50%, it's not 40%, it's more like may, maybe closer to 20% of the population. Once that happens, then the, then the process overall will, will quicken, I think. And once that quickening of the process starts, then everyone else will get there quicker. I mean, it's like um, once we got to the point of realizing how important unity is within the city, then it gradually eventually became easier to understand how and why unity is important in the nation as well. And we've been at that point for a few centuries. And that's why we're getting, we are over, and from that big picture perspective, we are getting closer to realizing how important it is for humanity as a whole to think of, of ourselves in terms of a global community rather than any individual nation. How will we know when we've reached that tipping point? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, <clears throat> the, I mean, I'm not sure if anyone has written a definitive uh, explanation of that. Uh, if they have, I'm not <clears throat> quite aware of it. But my sense is that we may know because the resistance put up around it is less. <coughs> and and um, <clears throat> right now, we it's clear that we're not there yet because <clears throat> the, um, the uh, clash of opposites is so strong right now, today, <clears throat> that... Um, uh, who knows how much longer it'll take for the um, us to get closer to that tipping point and for the resistance to lessen. But um, that's the part, that's the way that's the way the process happens. It's a twofold process. There's one uh, one thing that's happening is the unfolding of a new worldview, a new way of seeing the world and being in the world, and at the same time. <clears throat> The other thing that's happening is the breakdown of the old way of seeing things. So those are dual processes happening at the same time, and they haven't gotten far enough apart yet for the uh, building of the new to be a smooth ride. There's still a lot of resistance from the... Uh, uh, from the old worldview, which which see, which really a main part of that old worldview is seeing the nation as the center of focus for the world. Uh, but at the same time, there are many others 
and this has been true ever since or before even the United Nations came into existence um, 70 some years ago. Uh, so that's, that dual process has been happening for a long time, and um, even though there is that strong resistance to hold on to the, the need to have the nation at the, middle, at the center of the focus, um, there are other forces that are, um, have been in, in process for so, many, for so long that eventually um, that will overcome the resistance. I've been speaking to Dr. Robert Atkinson, who is an internationally recognized expert on life story interviewing, personal myth-making, and soul-making. He is the author of nine books, including The Story of Our Time, From Duality to Interconnectedness to Oneness. He previously taught at the University of Southern Maine. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you for coming in and, and having it with me today. Thank you. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 308. Our guests have included Elizabeth McClellan and Robert Atkinson. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a track from Spencer Albee's new album, Relentlessly Yours, in stores and online now at spenceralbee.com.
awful true I can think of anything and find a way to bring it back to you I wonder if you think of me but I presume you're angry if you do But in a couple days they'll open 